continue in our uh, journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we timed this thing perfectly that uh, today as we're kicking off the Christmas week, today we are going to uh, see the story of the birth of Jesus. Uh, and you heard a little bit earlier uh, next week, we are going to gather for our traditional uh, candlelight Christmas Eve candlelight service in the evening. We want to make sure that you uh, plan to join us to celebrate uh, that uh, that uh, special, special service. Um, it's one of my favorite services of the whole year for uh, several different reasons. But today we're going we're gonna to go through uh, this story of the birth of Jesus. We're actually going to start and move through a little bit earlier than that. Uh, we are going to get to cover today 66 verses of the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to end right about when the drive through starts uh, tonight. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, I really just want to, uh, rather than going line by line through this story, you, you know this story well. If you've been around uh, church, if you've celebrated a Christmas before, then there's a really good chance that you've heard a bunch of different sermons on the Christmas story. And there's just this element as I was studying and preparing for today, and how do we want to go through this chunk of this of this story? Uh, there was this one thing that stood out to me that I, I want to just kind of share with you today. It's it's a bit of a challenge, an invitation. Uh, maybe you could call this some observations on on some of the ways that people respond respond to what is happening in this moment. Uh, this is one of the things that Luke does really well. We've said this when we started the, the, the study through the Gospel of Luke, is that one of the things that Luke does is that he, he shows us the ways that people respond to Jesus. And so before Jesus is even beginning his ministry, Luke is already showing us the ways that people respond to the story and respond to Jesus himself. Uh, so, so far today, if we were to do like the previously on the Gospel of Luke, uh, it, it, here's what we've seen so far. The angel Gabriel shows up to a couple of different people. He shows up to Zechariah, who is a Jewish priest, and he tells him, your wife is going to be pregnant, and you're going to name your son that you're going to have, John. And Zechariah's like, I don't know. My wife is pretty old. That seems unrealistic. And Gabriel says to him, well, because you didn't believe, you had doubts, you're going to have to just go on mute until you see what you act, what, until you see it with your eyes, until you experience and witness that what I'm telling you is actually fully really going to happen. So he doesn't get to speak for a little while, and by a little while we mean for nine months, because what happens is his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant, and everybody is freaking out, and Zechariah can't say a thing about it. We also know that the angel Gabriel showed up to a young girl named Mary, who is betrothed to someone named Joseph, and they're not married yet, and so uh, the angel Gabriel shows up and says, you are going to be become pregnant, and this is going to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and Mary's response to that was, I absolutely believe that. That sounds wild and amazing, but I believe and I submit my life to what you are doing, and so she's called blessed because of her response. We also found out that, uh, that Elizabeth and Mary are actually cousins, and Mary goes to travel to be with her cousin Elizabeth. She ends up staying with her for several months. Uh, we believe from the way that Luke writes this story uh, that Mary was with her 
cousin Elizabeth for the rest of her pregnancy until John, the baby John, is born. But we also know that when Mary shows up and greets her cousin Elizabeth, that the baby John in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. And then Elizabeth begins to prophesy and bless Mary and say, certainly this is the Messiah that you're carrying, and I'm blessed just because the mother of our Lord has showed up to my house. And then Mary sings this beautiful praise song, and we talked about that. It's called the Magnificat uh, in, in church uh, history. It's been referred to as the Magnificat, the praise of Mary. And I got to tell you, we've, we've covered a lot of ground already, but this is where the Christmas story really begins to pick up. And, it, and it, I'll say that it picks up before the story of the birth of Jesus. And so to get to where we really need to get to today, 66 verses, we're going to read through all of that. We're going to pause and we're going to talk about some things that I want you to hear. There's really just just, just really one theme or, or one thread that I want to pull on. And I think it's something that, at least for me, that we often just skim over. It's easy to miss. And so we're going to try to stop at the things that we normally would miss as we study the responses to this Christmas story. But let's begin here where we really have left off in the Gospel of Luke. After the Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1, verse 56, it says, Mary stayed with her, with Elizabeth, for about three months, and then she returned home. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth and she had a son. So this is three months after the last time we had been talking about this story. And then her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy and they rejoiced with her. This is significant because Elizabeth was an old woman. Uh, it was expected that she would never get to have children. So they rejoiced with her that she finally did. Verse 59, when they came to circumcise a child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zechariah. This is part of the, the tradition, the ritual of the Jewish people that they would name the son Zechariah. They just presumed this because you would be named traditionally after the father or a significant male figure in the household. And so Zechariah being a priest, everyone just kind of put two and two together and said, of course, this kid's name is going to be Zechariah after his father. But his mother responded, she breaks protocol here, and she says, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives have that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called because Jewish custom would say that it was actually the father who has naming rights over the child. Uh, this is a, a cultural reality of the day. So they look at Elizabeth and said, oh, you sweet old lady, you just got a little bit mixed up there. I don't know where you pulled that name John from, uh, but let's look in, and, and see if, if dad can actually tell us what he actually wants this child to be named. So they motioned. He asked then in verse 63, asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote this. His name is John. And they were all amazed. <laughs> You're just making up names here, guys. This is, this is out of the custom. This is not what any of us were expecting. In the middle of a story that no one was expecting this child to be born, they certainly didn't expect him to have a name like John. Immediately, though, after he writes the words, his name is John, it says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Now, fear or, or awe and wonder came on all of those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard about him, about John, took it to heart, saying, what then will this child become? For indeed, the Lord's hand was with him. Uh, just as a, a subtle uh, kind of aside here, 
it, it strikes me the way that Luke tells the story, and there's another moment later on that we'll talk about. Uh, one of the things that stands out to me as I, as I read Luke's telling of the, the Christmas narrative is how many people knew what was going on. There, there seems to be this idea that I've always had in my mind that Jesus was a secret person until 30 years later, and then he finally comes out and does his ministry, and, and he's got three years of doing ministry publicly, but until then, nobody knew that there was anything significant about him or his story. And what's really interesting is how many people seem to have been in the know very early on in this story. And the way that they were in the know was, did you hear? Hey, did, did you see what happened at, at Zechariah's house? It was crazy, right? I know, it was crazy. Like, actually crazy. I know, I was there. I, I was the one that suggested the baby would be named Zechariah. And then he said, he wrote it down, John. I, I know, it's crazy. And is it true that when he wrote his name is John, that he began to speak after nine months of being on mute by God? Yeah, it's totally nuts, right? Yeah, it's amazing. Word of mouth, just like the best version of gossip. <laughs> if you can redeem gossip, this is the moment. It's just interesting that this subtle thing that Luke includes in the story, and it happens multiple times, that people seem to be pretty loose with telling this story. There's nothing in Luke's, in Luke's telling of the gospel's narrative that says that this was supposed to have been a secret. And the story spread. No one was tweeting it or Xing it, or Facebooking, or making YouTube videos. There was no vlog about the, the birth of John or, or the birth of Jesus. It just was you went and told your neighbor, and they freaked out about it with you. They were amazed, and it says they were in fear and amazed at what was happening. It's almost like this entire neighborhood suddenly had a sense that God had just done something special. This wasn't a secret. I, I think that actually matters. But let's take a look at Zechariah for a second. Zechariah, the guy who doubted that God was going to do something special in his old age and in the old age of his wife, he had clearly learned his lesson, right? Like he's had nine months to stew on this mistake that he made to doubt God. He's probably thinking multiple different times about the thing he's going to say the first time he gets to speak after nine months. And uh, Lord, I, I hope that the angel was right, uh, not only just about the promise, but that I'm going to get to speak again at some point. That would be really nice, right? But it's interesting that the first thing that we see Zechariah doing in this moment is demonstrating to us how much he has learned the lesson. And it's in a really subtle way. Remember, Luke is a guy who is really interested in details. Um, Elizabeth says he's going to be called John. I'd like his name to be John. And then they all aren't sure about that. And then Zechariah gets a writing tablet, and he doesn't he doesn't write, he should be called John, or I'd like to name him John. He writes, his name is John, as if Zechariah has figured out over the course of nine months that he wasn't the one who named this baby, and that he gets to speak because he finally agrees with God's plan. Oh, there's a baby. Well, I can't deny that part. Well, now I have something to say. His name is, present tense, is not because I'm naming him as the father, but because God told me his name is John. And all of this sets the stage 
for what is really going to be our focus today. Rather than uh, digging all the way down into the details, I told you at the beginning of this series, if you were with us on week one, that some weeks we're going to look at just one verse and really unpack the meaning, and other weeks we're going to go flying through different uh, whole chunks of the scripture. And today, like I said, I just want to pull on this one thread here uh, as we see the way that Luke paints people's responses to what God is doing, and particularly the story of the Messiah in the world. So we're going to keep here with Zechariah for a few minutes, and we're going to see that uh, three of the places I, I just want to pause for a second today, two, two of them are here with Zechariah. And so the first thing that we see that Zechariah does is that he offers a blessing to God. And then he's going to turn his attention of his blessing towards his son. Uh, now, if, if you have gone to a, a, a church where, they, where you're familiar maybe with uh, the, the phrase, the Magnificat, if when we said that Mary's praise is called the Magnificat and you knew that, you might also be aware that there's a name for what Zechariah is about to, about to say. It's historically being called the Benedictus. Benedictus is just taking the, the Latin translation, the very first word in what Zechariah says. Think about this. The first word he is recorded to have said after nine months is the word blessed. In fact, the first phrase that he says after nine months of being put on mute by God because of his lack of faith is blessed is God. That's a pretty good place to start, by the way. If God told you to be quiet for nine months, the first thing that you should say is that God is good because he let you speak again and because he actually did, in fact, keep his promise. But, but what I want to do is read to you all of what's referred to as the Benedictus or the blessing of Zechariah, this blessing that is really twofold in two directions. And then I want to uh, highlight to you two places where I think we can actually learn something of this thread that I just want to pull for you. So it says, then the father of John, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And starting in verse 68, here is what Zechariah says. Remember, prophesied, this is the implication is the Holy Spirit is giving him this utterance, but there's also something of Zechariah's own heart uh, and awareness and will that is tied into what he chooses to say in this moment. He says, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. In ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And he has given us the privilege, since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies, to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence for all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in the darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet 
into the way of peace. So that's, that's Zechariah's benediction or his blessing. And then it says, Luke continues this moment simply by saying this, the child grew up and became spiritually strong and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So this child who is blessed by his father in this way grows up and becomes what God intended him to become. Now, Zechariah's declaration here, his, his, his blessing, his benediction is really interesting and can give us a lot of different insights. And genuinely, we could take an entire Sunday just to stay here and go line by line. We could take multiple Sundays. In fact, uh, as I was studying for this, I listened to, to one preacher who took three Sundays just to walk through the Benedictus. So you're welcome that we're not going to do that today. Uh, we could, though, uh, certainly, and it would be worthy of that much study. But I, I think just to highlight or to, to move through uh, what Zechariah is saying is he makes at least four bold claims here. Number one, he says God has visited his people in the flesh. He's not referring to his own son, John. He's referring to his, to, to his, his wife's cousin's baby. He's referring to somebody in his own family who, who's, by the way, just for the record, Mary stayed for three months until the end of the pregnancy is in the room listening to this. Uh, uh, historians believe that this is how Luke actually got this recording, is that uh, Mary actually told Luke, as he was recording all of this, this is what happened in the room when John was born. It was pretty amazing. This is what happened when John, uh, when the celebration of, of his life and he, the, the, the neighborhood came for his circumcision, this is what happened. And so, so Zechariah is saying, and Mary has overheard this, and she's relating this to Luke, and he wrote it down for us to read, that Zechariah declares this prophetic declaration, God has visited us in the flesh. The second bold claim, the, this visit provides God's people redemption, salvation, and deliverance from their enemies. We could, if we were to take a bunch of time here, we would unpack the, the double meaning here of the physical enemies that God has delivered the people of Israel from and the spiritual enemies that God has delivered all of his people who put their faith in this Savior from. The, the enemy of, of death itself. The third bold claim is that in, in keeping this, uh, this, this uh, or, in, or in sending this visitor, rather, that God was making good on an ancient promise, an ancient set of promises, an ancient prophecy, an oath, an ancient covenant that was made with Abraham, the, the father to the people of Israel. He's keeping good in his promise. This is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. And the fourth bold claim that Zechariah makes is that this promise would result in God's people being free to serve him without fear. I heard one preacher uh, say that one of the things that God sent Jesus to save people from is to save them from God himself. It, which is a really interesting nuance of the story of Jesus if you think about uh, that it was God's wrath for our sin that would be poured out on us, and so God saved us from his own wrath. The Christmas story is, is about celebrating that God saved us from himself by inviting us into himself. It's pretty wild. As R.C. Sproul, uh, that, credit to him for that brilliant insight. Um, but, this, but Zechariah claims that this promise would result in God's people being free to serve him, and not just for a little bit, but for forever in God's presence. 
which is pretty significant to say that we get to be in God's presence if you understand the distinction between the old and the new covenant. That's wild and radical. So Zechariah is right to bless and to honor God. Something special is happening here. And it's not just something that God is doing, but it's like the thing that God is doing right now. And Zechariah, he, he, he understands it. And so he says, I have to give God some blessing and some praise for this moment. Now, he is drawing on ancient promises, and if you were here with us when we talked about the Magnificat, then you remember that it was impressive that Mary had seemed to have memorized Hannah's prayer from the story of Samuel, that she had, had committed it to heart so that when she prays, something, a version of that, something similar flowed out of her own heart in her own words, and that was significant. Zechariah, however, was a priest. He was highly educated, and he would have known the messianic promises and the prophecies and, and so here, not only is he reinforcing uh, this, this important lesson that we learned last week to remember Scripture and commit it to your heart, but he's doing something really interesting. He's building a, a doctrinal case. He's saying God has made these promises, and what is happening right now is a, is a fulfillment of all of these promises. He's doing theology. He's doing sound doctrine right now in this moment. He's calling back on all of these promises, going all the way back to Abraham and saying, all of this stuff I've been studying for all of my life, everything that we've been waiting for, I, I'm an authority on this. And I'm telling you, it's happening right now. This is what Zechariah is doing. He's a priest, is a respected voice in his community, the person who, who knows how to interpret the scripture. And, and what's, what's interesting is, is he's calling back on all of these promises that he was very familiar with, and he's saying, we're living it right now. He's using sound doctrine to respond to the work of God. Yeah, that matters. He knew what God had, sa what had said, but you know that it's not just enough to know the verses in the Bible. What Zechariah was doing here was proving that he didn't just know what the word said, he knew what it meant. He, he knew that it, it meant something. He knew that meaning well enough to be able to understand the moment he was in. This is one of the problems that the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day during his public ministry got in trouble with, is they knew the word, but they missed the meaning. And so Jesus shows up on the scene. He goes, you guys have completely misunderstood the meaning. Well, Zechariah didn't misunderstand the meaning. This is significantly important in the praise and the benediction of Zechariah. As he blesses God, he ties his good doctrine into as a, as a source of his, of his praise. Maybe we could say it like this, that sound doctrine seeks to understand God's meaning through his words and actions not inserting man's meaning into God's actions or man's meaning into the moment that we're in, but understanding what God meant when he wrote all of these promises. Okay, so the question would be, how do you actually apply this? This is the challenge when you're, when you're preaching through the Christmas story that you have to, as a preacher, part of my challenge, my job is to go, how do I give you something that you can walk away from this teaching with and maybe do something with this rather than just going, well, that was a neat story. We got to hear the Christmas story today. Hooray. We were good Christian Christmas people and, and we heard the story. I have to give you something to go do with it. So here's, here's what I think that you might be able to do. And here's something that the Lord has reminded me of as I was studying this. And this thing that I think that go, gets overlooked is maybe it's in the form of a question. The question might be something like this. To whom are you reciting the faithfulness of God this Christmas? What Zechariah was doing was reciting. He was sound doctrine. He was doing good theology. He was, he was drawing on all of the studying that he's done. 
but he didn't just keep it to himself. The first thing that he says after nine months is, look at God's faithfulness. God is blessed because he did the thing. Guys, he said he would do a thing, and he did the thing. The implication is that Zechariah knows the thing. He knows the promise, but he didn't keep it to himself. So the question for us is, who are you reciting the faithfulness of God? Or, or maybe another way to say it, with whom are you sharing your sound doctrine? Which, by the way, sound doctrine doesn't mean you interpret Scripture to what you think it means. Uh, in Bible college, I remember they drilled it into our brain in every single class. They would say a verse can never mean what it doesn't mean. So the question is, do you know what it means? Do you know? Do you know why John's birth is so important? Do you know? Do you understand the significance of the way Jesus came onto the scene? Why do we need salvation? Why are we promised that Jesus would save? And why did he have to do the saving work that he did exactly the way that he did it? If you've, if you've studied the story, if you know the meaning of the promises that build up to the ministry of Jesus, you would be able to say, I, I get it. I, I know why he did it the way he did it. He had to have, it had to have happened exactly like this. Do you know? Do you know? See, and if the answer is no, you're invited. You're invited to study. You're invited to know, to learn. Uh, by the way, I, I think this is what marks the difference between hearers of the word and bearers of the word, right? Th that, the, that the word is something that you carry with you. It's not just a story that you've heard. The challenge of Christmas for me every single year is to slow down enough and not just kind of fly by the Christmas story as if it's just something that, well, everybody's talking about the same thing. Yeah, there's like a manger and all that kind of stuff, but like... Zechariah challenges me to slow down and go, hang on a second. The thing that God has been talking about since the beginning of time happened now. And for us, it happened, and we're living in, in the response to that. How do you respond? Well, it's hard to respond to something you don't understand. So Zechariah's invitation is dig deeper than just this is a nice story this is something significant. So who, what do you know and who are you telling? Which then moves us straight into the second part of what I want to focus on today with Zechariah's benediction or, or, or blessing. Zechariah, because then he, he actually, and we see it in verse 76, he turns the focus of his blessing uh, from God to his son. And if you could just imagine the moment that we're in, the priest who's a new father is holding his son in his arms, just like I saw Mike Coddington walking around church this morning before the, the service started with his daughter in his arm, right? And she just was out, right? And he just was, he just was so comfortable in that moment. And you could imagine that Zechariah probably looked nothing like Mike Coddington, who's now a father of three and has held a baby before, right? You could imagine this, this kind of older fella and he's like a religious leader in the community and is used to holding it all together, is holding his son for the first time and probably was like handed this baby and Elizabeth was probably like, no, 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 you're doing it wrong, right? Hold the head, right? Every, 
Every person who's, who, who's been a father for the first time remembers when you were told, hold the head. You're, you're holding the baby wrong, right? And so Zechariah is probably nervous in this moment. But then in that moment as he's nervously holding his son that he's been hoping to be able to hold in his arms for his entire life and is finally now in the realization of that moment and after having been put on mute by God for his doubt has now because of his faith in agreement with God's plan finally been able to speak and the first thing out of his mouth is that the Holy Spirit just comes on him in this unction while he's holding this baby. I imagine that something suddenly like something shifts and he's not really nervous anymore He's just overwhelmed with excitement and enthusiasm about the moment that he's in, and he begins to say praises and blessings to the Lord Most High, the God of Israel who has been faithful and who has kept his promise. And then two-thirds of the way through this declaration of blessing to God Most High, the faithful one who has kept his promise, turns down and looks at his son. And he says, you, child are blessed. And this is, again, listen to what he says. You will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. What a blessing to live up to. What a call. What a responsibility. But I propose to you that there's something radical here that is easy to overlook. And it's wildly important that as much as we see in Zechariah's blessing of God, this importance of knowing the meaning of the moment that you're in and using the sound doctrine to build this praise for God and the invitation for us to share that what we know about the meaning of the season and the meaning of the story, that we would share that with others. As much as that is true, we also get this glimpse into this unrepeatable moment that starts a journey that I propose to you lasts for somewhere between 20 to 30 years. That in this moment, as Zechariah looks down on his son, and what might be possibly the very first words that Zechariah ever spoke to his son John. It says, blessed child, or you, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. Is that this is the first moment that we see Zechariah stepping into the responsibility of a disciple maker. Now my brain wants to say father, but what is a father? if not a disciple maker, right? Train up your child in the way that they should go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it. The, the disciple maker, the, the spiritual parent, the person who takes responsibility for the spiritual nourishment and development of another human being, is the person who understands that that's not just a vapid promise that is guaranteed that if you make your kids go to church, they'll go to church when they're adults. But it's actually just as much a warning as it, as it is a promise. Train up a child in the way that they should go. Because when they're older, they won't depart from the way you trained them up. Right? Zechariah steps into this moment to say, now as I look to you, I'm going to declare over you 
something that for the next 20 to 30 years, I'm going to take responsibility to make sure that you know. Think about the way this kid was raised. His dad was a priest. Like, I, I know that my kids just know stuff about the word because I talk to them about sermons. Their dad's a pastor. They know stuff about the church. Not, not about you guys, but like about church culture and the kingdom because their dad's a pastor. I just can't help it. I'm, I'm a teacher of the word. It just comes out of me all the time. And I wonder if maybe it should be like that, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a disciple maker. This is the invitation. Zechariah look, would look at us and he would say, would you have somebody that you can look to and say, you will become everything that God has called you to become. And I'm going to spend the next two to three decades making sure that you become everything that God has called you to become. This is the invitation of discipleship. And even though we could easily look over this to say, of course, the dad would look and say nice words to his son. Zechariah wasn't just saying nice words to his son. He was making a commitment to a journey to make sure that me, the priest who knows the sound doctrine, will share this with my son so that he will also know, fully understanding all of the messianic promises, the meaning of the moment, so that when he sees Jesus, the Messiah, walking into the water to be baptized, baptized that John knew full well what was happening in that moment. Who do you think got him ready? His dad. His disciple maker. It's so easy for us to overlook this, but I think that this is profoundly important in the story that we see the disciple making started right here in this moment. Preparing, somebody had to prepare the one who would prepare the way. And I wonder if you think back for a second, who, who prepared you for the things that you are doing for God? Who prepared you? That preparation, however intentional and however long it was, we would call that discipleship. There's something wildly important about discipleship is that it, it's not happening right now. This is not discipleship. This is teaching and preaching. Discipleship, Pastor Danny says, our, our, our youth and worship pastor, he, he says discipleship begins in the pulpit, but it really takes life in relationships. It really comes to life in your relationships. And, and I think this is why we see a lesson about discipleship in this moment of Zechariah. He was beginning a journey of discipleship. He had 20 to 30 years before John moves out into the wilderness at least two decades with this kid to make sure that he was ready. Jesus, on the other hand, the one who happens to be God himself, took three years to make disciples. And there's something that's happened in the Western church that we seem to think that we can make disciples by having people sit and look all in the same direction, not have any relational connection to each other, and just listen to a TED Talk once a week. Twice a month, if you're the average American. You see how much we've diminished this valuable element of the kingdom? Like you're never going to become everything that God has called you to become. All of the purpose that God has written for your life is never going to be fulfilled if all of your Christian experience is just attending church. I, I really, I, I, I want, there's a part of my flesh, like the pastor in me that says like, I'm so sorry if I'm making you feel uncomfortable in this sermon before Christmas like, I, I know what we're supposed to do right now, <laughs> but I just, all week, I've just been hearing the same thing. Like, we have, we have got work to do. 
we've got work to do. We have work to do. By the way, just so you know, Jesus totally agrees with everything that Zechariah would set in motion for his son John and the idea that discipleship is wildly important. This was, this was on Jesus' heart. In fact, it was the last thing that he said before he ascended to the Father, right? In Matthew chapter 28, we see that Jesus tells his disciples, his disciples, the people he spent three years with, he tells them to do what? Go, get out of here. Get to work. Doing what work? Making disciples. Making disciples. He never told them to host church services, although church services are good and we're glad that you come. I think it's important that you hear the teaching of the word so that you can be equipped to go and teach the word. What's that called? Go make disciples. Right? Go make disciples. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey. How do you think you got here? Somebody taught somebody who had been taught by somebody, who had been taught by somebody, who had been taught by somebody all the way back until that moment when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, go. And Zechariah in this moment seems to have grabbed a hold of something and says, I take responsibility. And so the question for us is, for whose spirituality do you take responsibility? It's very easy for us to say, my own. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. Good for you. That's excellent. That's biblical. You should do that. But don't miss this, that you don't get to fully engage in the kingdom unless you're also building the kingdom. And how do you do that? You go and make disciples. You do what Zechariah did. You look at somebody else and say, God wants you to become something, and I take responsibility to help you become that. Certainly, John had a choice. He could have rebelled. It's good that he didn't. But Zechariah took responsibility for somebody else's development, and I think that that cannot be overlooked. So who are you discipling? Parents, obviously, this certainly begins, those of us who are parents, this certainly 100% begins with our children. Um, But Jesus didn't say, go disciple your kids. He said, go and make disciples. That means there's other people out there who aren't disciples. Go help them become disciples, right? And so what does this look like? Making disciples, I think, requires at least three things. I think it requires shared responsibility. The disciple maker to teach well, to have sound doctrine and communicate good, sound, solid doctrine. And the disciple to actually be teachable, to learn and grow. It requires shared responsibility. It requires genuine relationship. Jesus calls his disciples friends. Zechariah was John's dad. Relationship is inherent into the discipleship relationship. And it requires time. Zechariah had about 30 years. Jesus managed to do it in three. He was God. He had an advantage. I think effective disciple making exists in the long-term relationships of shared responsibility to see the disciple grow in understanding of and right response to sound doctrine. The sweet spot of disciple making exists somewhere between three and 30 years. Who are you discipling? Who three decades from now will say, I'm more prepared to do the things Jesus has called me to do because I knew you. So it's an important question. It's an important question. 
one that we're going to move on from right now because I've got not a lot of time and one more thing that i got to do and like 40 verses to cover. Okay? You guys have heard the Christmas story? Did you know, you know what happens in the Christmas story? Jesus is born. Can, can I read it to you um, relatively quickly at the risk of sounding like I'm going to disrespect the story? I know that often I say it's important to slow down, but let's just, let's just fly through this story for a second, okay? Luke chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to tell you something you can do with this later that I think will redeem the fact that I'm about to read this so quickly. So it says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered, which by the way is like a historically accurate thing that actually happened. Luke, the doctor, the researcher made sure that we knew that this was rooted in a historical moment. Verse 2, this registration took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, so everyone went out to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph, remember him, part of the story, he also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family line of David. I don't have time for this, but isn't it awesome that when Zechariah was uh, giving his Benedictus, that he was saying that the salvation has come to us out of the house of David? Huh. Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in, in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house, the family line of? Huh. Of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in the manger because there was no guest room available for him. Also don't have time for this, but not uh, probably a barn. Uh, it's whole, there's a whole thing there about the way that this verse has been translated. There was, it just, it's complicated. It, um, we'll, we'll talk about it some other time. Um, it's, it, there's so much in here, though. Let's keep going. Okay. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Appropriate response when you see angels. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you the gospel, or good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and laying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them, they returned to heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was laying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported, say reported. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about his child, about this child, and all who heard it were amazed. All who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them because Mary knew the things she should say out loud and the things she should keep to herself, a wise young woman. And the shepherds returned glorifying God and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. <laughs> okay, so much. I didn't do a great job of just reading it. I, I'm sorry. But uh, 
the third, the third thing that I, I, as I'm just drawing on things that I think that often get overlooked in this story that are wildly important, all in the same theme of the way that people respond is the response of the shepherds. So here's what happens. They see the angel, then they hear the news, then the angel choir shows up and they hear the song and then they look at each other and go, let's go check it out. They go check it out. They see everything they were told is exactly as it was promised it would be, which is a theme in Luke's gospel. The thing you told is the thing that happened. It's pretty amazing. And then it, they did something. They did something after that. They left. And they, they said what they had heard. They, they, they told the people. They declared. So the shepherd's declaration is this vital part of this story that I, I think we, we miss a lot. Right? Like in, in the manger scenes, it's always uh, Jesus... Joseph and Mary, a sheep, a goat, maybe a cow, if you have the precious moments nativity set. <laughs> Some snow on the top of a, of a barn. And these shepherds, or like a dude with a shepherd's staff, right? And then depending on your historical and biblical accuracy in the moment, the, the wise men, three, are, are like standing over here holding boxes, right? Not there on the Christmas day, but anyway. Uh, and that's your manger, right? And what's interesting is that before this night is over, the shepherds are gone. The wise men had not shown up yet, and the shepherds are gone. And this night actually ends with Joseph and Mary with their brand new baby, who cried, just for the record. I know the song says that he didn't, like, no crying he made, but, like, that's inaccurate. He definitely cried. He's 100% human. Like, he pooped and cried and all of it. 100% human. I know. But it's just them, which means that the shepherds left, and when they left... I need you to understand this. When they left, their lives were different. Something had changed. Everything had changed. But something had changed in them. And what's interesting is that they don't just go back to work. Is that apparently they went and told people. And that all the people that they told were amazed so again, here at the end of this passage of Scripture that we're focusing on today, we see that Luke is communicating to us that telling the story is a natural response to seeing Jesus or to seeing the work of God in the world. It's the declaration. It matters. Now, here, here's ultimately why it's important that we have gone through so much scripture and get to the response of the shepherds. Because while Zechariah teaches us some things about sound doctrine and disciple making and all of that is wildly important, the shepherds teach us that everyone gets to play. I love, I love looking at, at Zechariah and going, yes, it's a high calling to really know the story and to really give my life to discipleship. And the shepherds remind me that you don't even know how, have to know how to read or have taken a shower recently to be eligible to share the good news about Jesus. 
Everyone gets to play. So if, if you're listening to Luke tell us, hey, be like Zechariah, you should be inspired by the Benedictus and the, the one who knows all of the good doctrine and knows all of the meaning. And, and, and you feel kind of bad about that because you're kind of new to the story. You haven't spent a lot of time studying or, or you, you hear all of the invitation to make disciples and you know that this isn't just a suggestion, it's a command. You must make disciples. And you go, but I've never done that. And you feel bad about it. The shepherds offer us an easy on-ramp. Just tell somebody whatever it is that you know. The, the shepherds didn't know. I promise you they couldn't read. They weren't scholars. They were ordinary people. Not even high school graduates. They're not understanding all of the meaning based on all of the prophecies. They're not making theological connections like Zechariah. They just heard something amazing and saw it with their eyes, and they knew that it had changed them, and they couldn't keep it in. So the question comes full circle, doesn't it? Whatever your level of doctrinal understanding is about the meaning of the moment that is the birth of Jesus and the, the meaning of John's birth coming onto the scene to make the way, whatever your, however much you get it, and whether you've been discipled intentionally or have one or not, the invitation of the shepherds is for all of us. Just tell somebody. In church history, we don't have a fancy name for this, like the Benedictus. It's just called a testimony. It's just your story. It's just, what has Jesus done for you? And no matter how much you feel like you are not qualified to be a storyteller, I guarantee you, you have a story. Have you met Jesus? Do you know him? Do you, under, do, do you understand anything about this story? That's enough. Just share what you know with somebody else, which, by the way, is step one of disciple-making. And if, and if what you know, even if it's just one thing, Jesus is the Son of God, you know what that's called? Sound doctrine. Good job. You're brilliant. Just tell somebody else that. This is the whole thread I want to draw today. In the, in the tapestry that is the way that Luke tells the gospel story, in all of the details that Dr. Luke shares, I just want you to think about this one thing. Who are you telling what you know? Who are you telling what you know? In fact, this is so simple that we're just going to invite the whole neighborhood to drive through our parking lot today so that we can just tell them something that we know. In fact, it's so simple that I'm going to pray in just a second, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to tell somebody something that you know. I give you homework assignments from time to time that are like, hey, go memorize the Magnificat, right? How's it going? Today, homework assignment is one of the, it's Christmas. I, I feel like the teacher who wants to give you no homework over Christmas break, okay? So this is an in-class assignment. It's a group project. You can do this before you leave class today. Ready? 
Here's what it is. We're going to pray in a second. Before you walk out those doors, tell at least one other person something that God has done for you. Really? Like, it's that easy? Like, that's it? That's all you want me to do? I know. I know. It is that easy. Just be a shepherd and tell somebody something that God has done. Has God done anything for you? Yeah? I know I'm not the only one. I, know, I got a text message this morning saying that somebody that we were praying for who has... Who, who had uh, this, this cancer issue going on, that, that we got good news today from a doctor, right? I just got that text message before church started. Somebody's got a testimony to share. Somebody's like, had God say something. I, I, know, I know there are stories of people in our church who, who had financial challenges and then God just provided money for them. I know uh, stories of relational brokenness that the Holy Spirit just came in and was able to, to, to massage the relationship and forgiveness and reconciliation has happened over time and just these miracle, beautiful stories. I know of people who have struggled with depression and have found joy in the salvation that they found in Jesus. Like there's lots of good stories. All I'm asking you is just before you leave today, just be a shepherd and just practice, exercise the muscle. of What does it feel like to tell somebody else? That God has done something for me. You don't have to be Zechariah. You don't have to go back to college. Just, you could. <laughs> Kristen, who is enrolling in, in college uh, in the near future, and, and uh, go. <laughs> but I just think sometimes we just overcomplicate it. And we miss it. And so this stuff that gets overlooked, I just wanted to drill down for a second today. And so, God, we say thank you to you that in the midst of all of the details of the Christmas season and in the midst of all of the story and in the midst of all of the stuff, the activity, the preparation, the, the meals and the, the driving and the cleaning up and the celebrating and the time with family and the hoping that nobody says anything that is uncomfortable and the driving home and the resting and the stuff. In the middle of all of that, God, remind us that this really actually is simple. We have seen something. We have seen something that is life-changing. And to whatever degree we understand it, if it is the level of a shepherd or the level of a priest, we are responsible, God, to carry the story of what we have seen in our hearts and to have it come out of our mouths. God, help us in our doctrine. Help us to make disciples. But, Lord, challenge us and empower us and inspire us to begin simply with a declaration. We have seen the goodness of the Lord. He has come. You are faithful. You are good. We believe it, God. And so, Lord, again, we say this before we take a moment to share. We believe that what Scripture says about you, Jesus, is true. Do you believe that today? Could you say that to the Lord? God, I believe that what Scripture says about you is the truth.
God, we believe that the story of your birth is one of the most important moments in history, and it has marked our lives. Thank you, God, for revealing your plans for us as individuals and for all of mankind. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us and your faithfulness to your word. God, would you help us to grow more and more in our, our, in our understanding of what your word and your works in the world really mean. Help us, God, to make disciples who also understand. Help us, God, to declare what we have come to know and help us to make that declaration in ways that inspire faith in other people. We pray this in the name of the Father who loved us so much that he sent his Son. We pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus, who came to live and die and conquer death so that we might live. We pray this in the name of the Holy Spirit who fills us, and teaches us, and empowers us to enjoy the full life that Jesus promised. Amen.